Talk number four is entitled, Our Great High Priest, by Brother Alfred Norris. Alfred. In order to keep the last address short, I mean not more than two talks long, <laughs> I did cut out one piece of material which really shouldn't be left out, and only referred to it to the extent that I spoke of that object that Hezekiah destroyed when he destroyed Moses' serpent in the wilderness and called it a piece of brass. But it's too important to be dismissed with only that simple allusion. So I wonder if you'd begin by turning to John chapter 3, when something which is printed as part of talk 3 will now find its place in talk 4. John chapter 3, verse 14 where against the background of the words we all know so well, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We have words which are similar to that. And the Lord says, or John says for him, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth may in him have eternal life. Reading the Revised Version. And there the Lord deliberately compares what is now going on in his actual redemptive mission with that which had gone on to provide an acted type in the days when Israel sinned in the wilderness. You know that story well enough. I'll just remind you of its basic facts. Israel spoke against God. God was angry and sent fiery serpents to punish them. They could do nothing to repel the fiery serpents or cure their bites. And so in their desperation, as people will, they called to God for help. And God said to Moses, make a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole that those who look at it may live. And so they did. Later, as we have said, it became a mere object of idolatrous worship. It had been stored up in holy places, and they brought it out and made an idol of it. And Hezekiah said, that's the end of that. We won't have the object anymore, and he destroyed it. But the Lord made use of the occasion nonetheless. He didn't need the image for that purpose, and said, that's what Moses did, and it will be like that again now. Would you like just to look at the notes? I haven't referred you to them before. At page 8, which is part of talk 3 ostensibly, And see the parallel drawn on line 7 and downwards between what happened when Moses raised up his serpent and what was to happen to the Lord. The words are almost all taken from John 3.14. They begin with the Lord saying, As Moses lifted up, which is to be compared with, so must there be lifted up. Then the Moses story, the serpent... And the parallel is the Son of Man. And then it was that any man who looked upon that serpent, and the parallel is that whosoever believeth in him, the Son of Man, and finally he lived, and the parallel is may have eternal life. It's a very close parallel, obviously deliberately worked out by the Lord and intended to be pressed in its every detail. So the lifting up of Moses' serpent is like the lifting up of Jesus. Just concentrate on the lifting up. I suppose what Moses did was cast this snake 
secure it to a wooden stake and see to it that the stake was itself secured in a socket in the ground. And the lifting up would be placing of it high enough for people to see it. In the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, he uses that word lifted up three times about himself. This one. And when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he. In John chapter 8, I think. Then the last one in chapter 12. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. And at that point, John explains what Jesus meant. This he spake, signifying what death he would die. So lifting up his crucifixion in the case of the Lord, when he's tempted to wonder whether perhaps there may have been a local gruesome vernacular, which they speak of lifting up as we would speak of strung up, being a means of execution. But that's just a guess. The certain thing is that the Lord is comparing the erection to view of Moses' serpent with the exposure to view of himself upon his cross. The next point I'll just defer for a moment because it's the most difficult and in some ways the most important. Actually comparing the serpent with the Son of Man. Line two of this comparison. Line three is plain enough, I think. Any man who looked upon the serpent is compared with whosoever believeth in Jesus. And who were they who looked upon the serpent? Why, the serpent bit. The snake bit. The sin bit. The people who couldn't cure themselves of their disease. And what did they look at? The evidence that God could do what they couldn't. A picture of a serpent defeated, executed on a pole, held before them to show God's victory over it. And so those who looked at it did what? They said, I'm badly bitten and I'm dying, but if I trust in God, God has shown that what I and my healers and all my recurrences can't do, he can do. He's still able to conquer my sin and the power of it. And believing in that, they were healed of their snake bites. Just locally. Of snake bites, I expect they went on being sinners almost as much as ever before. They don't seem to have reformed much. But in the parallel, they recovered from their sin bites and lived. Of course, the last bit of the parallel is lived. I, I went on for a long time under the illusion that what the, the Numbers passage really said was that they were healed. But it really, really, really does say they lived. They were dying people and they lived. And the Lord says that whosoever believeth in him, Jesus lifted up, may have eternal life. You look upon the cross of Jesus and you live. To thy cross we look and live. We have those words in our hymn book, don't we? So whoever looked on that, he lived. A slight digression, which could make the fourth talk, four talks long. A slight digression about that, he lived. The word life in the New Testament is a very distinctive word. It sometimes just means the kind of life you and I live. Whosoever loveth his life shall lose it. But it can be the kind of life that you and I want to live and aren't doing. Without Christ, I am living a life which is a living death. There's no meaning in it, no purpose for it. It just ends where it began. With Christ, there's a new kind of life that doesn't end like that. And John's Gospel in particular calls it eternal life. It doesn't mean a life which from now on goes on and on, physically enjoyed forever. He doesn't mean immortality. 
in those contexts. He means that you pass from one kind of living which isn't worthy of the name to another kind of living that is. Parallels. Let the dead bury their own dead, but go thou and publish abroad the kingdom of God. This my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. You have it quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Thou hast the name that thou livest and art dead. Four parallel cases where what we call life is called in the Bible from God's point of view a living death. And the Lord says, I haven't come either to perpetuate death or to bring it about, I've come to give life. The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life. Whosoever believeth in the Son of God shall not come into condemnation, but is passed out of death into life, says John in chapter 25, sorry, chapter 5, verse 25, quoting the words of Jesus. So those who believe in the Lord and see him exalted upon the cross and see the meaning of it may pass out of the living death, which is the death of the unregenerate, into the life which belongs to the servants of Christ. I picture the way in which life is spoken of in John's Gospel, something like this. God has all life all the time. He is immortal, of course. And the true life of the ages belongs to him. Only he can share it, if he chooses. From time to time he has dipped down upon the earth with his messengers. And they have revealed the life that belongs to God. Never more so than when, as John's first letter puts it, we have seen the life, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. And he's talking about Jesus. So when Jesus said, he that hath the Son hath the life, he that hath not the Son hath not the life, we are being told, see the life of God come down from heaven and create a pool of illumination upon the ground and step inside it and stay there and you have the life of God. Step outside and you're in darkness again. Or let God take away his life and it's gone. The believers in God walk in the light of life. They're no more immortal in the fleshly sense than ever they were. Not till after the sleep of death, if that it must be, when the resurrection comes and eternal life merges in immortality. For the life which we now live, we live by faith. The faith which is of the Son of God, as I said earlier, as Paul said, who loved us and gave himself up for us. So, to look at Moses, snake transfixed, offered life from death by snake bite. And to look at Jesus Christ, transfixed upon the cross, offers that life that belongs to God instead of death by human sinful mortality. And looking upon Jesus crucified is what does it. And that's a difficult bit. Looking on Jesus crucified. As Moses lifted up, so must be lifted up the serpent, the son of man. The serpent and the son of man on a parallel line. The antitype of the serpent being the son of man. Does that make sense? To think of the Lord Jesus Christ as in any way comparable with the serpent. He whose life was altogether lovely. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Can you dare you, dare I, think of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross as in any way linked with the serpent? Yes, it looks as though I can and we can and we all should see that there is a parallel there.
Would you look to a very well-known verse of Scripture, please, in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For as much then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Just pause for a moment. Notice the apostles' insistent emphasis. Jesus also, himself, likewise. There's no doubt about it. He rubs it in, doesn't he, until he can't mistake it. It's actually about Jesus we're talking. Jesus also, himself, likewise. Some of you might know this story, but there was once a brother who was lecturing in a nearby town to my own in England, and he wanted to emphasize the fact of Jesus Christ coming back. And he said, and I've never forgotten this, Jesus Christ's second return back to the earth again. Second return back again. But you, missed, you didn't miss his point. He didn't mean his eighth return. He meant his second beyond a doubt. Well, here you have here. Jesus also, himself, likewise, took part of the same. It's the same parallel, isn't it? You and I have a certain kind of nature called flesh and blood. Because of that, Jesus also, himself, likewise, took part of the same. There is a necessary link between our flesh and blood nature and our Saviour having the same. If it were not the same, the equation would collapse. The two are tied together. My flesh and blood and his flesh and blood. Why? So that because he was in that flesh and blood nature, by death, he might destroy him that hath the power of death. That is, the devil. Now they who believe in an immortal, distinct, separate devil have an awful trouble with these verse, this verse. I don't see how they can ever explain it. But we who believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God that he was, yet bore our nature and who know that after he had died he was perfected, can see, can't we, that when that Christ in that nature hung until he died upon his cross, all that was in that nature was put to death, and only the purified, refined, perfected Christ would be raised. He put away sin. Yes, that's a quotation from the same book. Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He partook of flesh and blood that his death might destroy the devil. Destroy the devil and put away sin become parallel terms. And all made possible because the Lord partook of that same flesh and blood nature that you and I have. So if then we can say that the Lord's death destroyed the devil, then we can say it destroyed the devil because the Lord's death put away once and for all of all that might have been unacceptable to God had it been exercised, but it wasn't. The Lord didn't sin, and now he demolished even the power to sin by causing his flesh and blood nature by his own will to die upon the cross. What Moses' brazen serpent signified, and the brass snake had got no say in the matter, 
You molded it and you stuck it there. So the Lord Jesus Christ's death accomplished. In that by his own free will, laying down his life, he caused to be set up for all to see upon the cross the defeat of sin. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, but he died that the source of sin might be removed. I don't know whether this will appeal to you or not. But you will know we all have a sort of a problem with the fact that the temptations in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4 are described in terms of a, a confrontation between Jesus Christ and the devil or Satan or the evil one. And if that were being acted as a drama, you'd have to have the Lord Jesus Christ engaging in discussion with a second party outside himself called the devil. There's one other place in Scripture where something similar but rather more shadowy is done. And that's when the Lord, talking about his pending death, said, Henceforth I will not speak much with you, my disciples, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. And I see a picture before my eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross, dying. And along comes the prince of this world, sees Jesus there dying, shakes his head sadly and goes away. There's nothing left for me. That's done me in. That death of Christ upon the cross. So if we see the Lord Jesus Christ as we must, not just going through as he went through, as a willing servant enduring and enjoying and submitting to and carrying out the will of God, but as somebody doing it for you and me, then nothing the Lord did is a fight between him and any one other person. No victory he won is just a victory over the sin he might have committed but didn't. Is yet one more nail in the coffin of your devil and mine. He fights that fight for us. He is fighting our sinfulness. He is winning our victories. And the seed of the woman shall bruise the seed of the serpent is fulfilled in him. And to see him defeating the wiles of the devil in a pictorial presentation of his temptations in Matthew 4. is to see him going so far that the devil's got nothing left. He's on the verge of total defeat. And as it were, in a dramatic picture, he comes and takes a look. The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me and knows he hasn't a hope. The Lord has effectively at that point destroyed him that hath the power of death. That is the devil. And all this is possible because the Lord did share our nature and wouldn't have been possible if he hadn't and would not have been possible had the Lord been and still was eternal God or a mere man forsaken by God. It was Jesus in his own person carrying out the war against the devil and bringing it to a successful conclusion. For as much as you and I are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus also himself likewise took part of the same nature his death might destroy, well, for him, once and for all, for us more protractedly, the devil. Our sin, too, must yield to that victory, if we will let it. But now, let's look about and see where we have got, you and I in our Christian living. If we have understood the message of the previous talks, particularly the last one, then we don't resist the cross of Christ, we join it.
We don't try to stop him being crucified, we expect to be crucified ourselves. Not physically, but spiritually in our own rejection of the old man and his deeds. We consent to be crucified with Christ. We see ourselves side by side with him. We appeal to him for help and say we want the old man to stay dead. Now we'd like to live a faithful life in your sight. All that is made possible by seeing the picture of the Christ upon the cross and taking up our cross and following him. But Paul in Romans chapter 6 has got to that point. He showed us that we're all under sin in the first few chapters. Exemplified to us what it means to trust in God by the faith of Abraham in chapter 4. Spoken of the goodness of God in bringing Christ to the birth for us. For it was God's work in bringing Christ to the birth for us. And has commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In chapter 5. But even up to the point where he says, the worse the sin, the greater the opportunity for the grace of God. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Then he faces the inevitable question, which we may not ask in words, but we're always asking in our lives. If the grace of God is so big, if there's no sinning too great for it, then why don't we sin a bit more to give his grace more opportunity? If God likes coping with problems, let's give him plenty. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God says, Paul says, in Romans chapter 6. The answer is firm and uncompromising. No, we will not. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that to whomsoever ye render yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? You haven't thrown away all shackles, Paul says, when you believe in Christ. You've cast off the ball and chain of bondage to human sin. You've consented of your own freedom to be yoked to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not your own masters any more than you ever were. But whereas the wages of sin was death, the gift of God through Jesus Christ to his servants is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So don't think you can go away and live as you like now that God has shown how great his forgiveness is. But recognize that you've thrown all that over and now you shouldn't willingly be going on doing that anymore. How shall we that are dead unto sin live any longer therein? So no, there is no excuse for continuing sinfulness for those who are in Christ. And then Paul takes a candid look around in the seventh chapter of Romans, at creation including himself. And he considers how he wants to obey the law of God and doesn't do it very well. But that way of God which he delights in in his mind his members refuse to cooperate with. And all along he finds himself lapsing into sin. He even goes through his previous record of Jewish goodness, which is a very good record. And as it were, he goes through the Ten Commandments. Thou shall have no other God beside me. He ticks himself off. I'm just like that. Thou shall make no graven images. He didn't do that either. Thou shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Not guilty. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Not guilty. A breach of that. Honor thy father and thy mother. He says he's not guilty and we must believe him. Thou shalt not steal. Not in the accepted sense, he hadn't done that. 
Thou shalt not kill. Not guilty. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Not guilty. Thou shalt not speak false witness. Well, I think he would have had second thoughts about that one, but he says anyway that even that one I'm not presently troubled about because I've come to a point where I can't escape. I had not known sin except the Lord had said, Thou shalt not covet. When that commandment, sin revived and I died. Just think, you're not to steal your neighbor's ox, but you might want to. You're not to corrupt your neighbor's wife, but it might be a very attractive thought, if only you could do it and get away with it. Coveting is the one sin before which almost everybody must say, guilty. That, says Paul, was me. And he seems to say that even my allegiance to the law of Christ has not made that an easy matter to deal with. And having laid down as a law that we must not continue in sin, he looks at the thoughts that go on in his own mind and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Christ might have died for me and I might have put away the past, but it's the present I'm concerned with and I'm not even succeeding there. The atonement is null and void as far as I'm concerned. I'm still a sinner and I can't help myself. That's what he seems to be saying in his dramatic presentation of the futility of fleshy's claims in Romans chapter 7. And then all of a sudden there bursts out of the black darkness the words, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sin's flesh, and for sin in the flesh condemned sin. And hope revives again. And he sees the Lord Jesus Christ as being not just the dire for sins, but the one who lives. As you go through Romans 8, you see that he is now proceeding from the cross to beyond the cross. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that... What would you have said to complete that sentence? It's Christ that dies and he's coming back again. Of course he is. But that isn't what Paul says, not here. That's not his immediate purpose. It is Christ that died, gay, rather, that is risen again and is sat down at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. The atonement is not over. The work is still going on. The Lord is not taking a 1900-year sleep between his ascension and his return. However little we may understand what he's doing and how he's doing it, that he is doing it is not in doubt. There's a risen Christ up there, looking down on your need and mine, ever living to make intercession for us. And it marks the threshold between failure and triumph. With him there, we need not go wrong. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that he's risen again, and is set down at the right hand of God. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall angels, or heights, or depths, or principalities, or powers? I am persuaded that nothing can do that, says Paul. And from the heartfelt cry, nobody can help me. For Romans chapter 7 then emerges, nobody can stop me. Of Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, 
he gives us, and we just look at this, a little panorama of what God started to do, is going on doing, and is going to finish doing. Romans chapter 8. Verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he foreordained, then he also called. To be called, then he also justified. To be justified, then he also glorified. And then, what should we say to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? And he goes from start to finish. A finish that hasn't happened yet. He foreknew, he foreordained, he called, he justified. And in some way we've all got as far as that. At least our justification is proceeding, if God be willing. But glorified, no, that is yet to come, but securely to come. It won't fail for those who are justified and made righteous in Christ. God is in control of everything that will happen to the faithful believer. And if it is left in his hands, reposed in his hands. And if we cooperate with him, all things work together for good. So in Romans 8, it isn't just Christ did die. That is the solution to our sin problem. Is that Christ did die and we agreed to die with him and we have formally put away our old man and we don't make a perfect job of what we have set about doing but help is at hand. The Lord is still there to help. He wants to finish off successfully that which he began so effectively in his death. He ever liveth and maketh intercession for us. And that's why Hebrews comes back into the picture again. So could we turn to the chapter which we looked at a few minutes ago in chapter 2 and read on. Hebrews 2, we'll reread verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So there are two interconnected reasons why Christ needed to be like us in his nature. The one was to suffer and conquer sin in his dying, and the other was to be a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, when we look up to the one who is seated at the right hand of God, we say, he's just like us in the sufferings he had. He's just like us in the battles he fought. More than we are in the victories he won, but he did it 
from our baseline. He's been through it all. And we know he feels what it's like. We know he knows what travail we have in doing battle with our sin. And we know he still wants to help. He who willingly died for our sins is willing now to do all that he can to help us be successful in our battle against the sinfulness which remains. Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, not just to die, but to continue, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For he's been through it himself, in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. The same point is taken up and expanded a little in the fourth chapter. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. That was the title of our talk. Our great high priest. Seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold past our confession. For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But one that hath been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in time of need. We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. There have been high priests like that. There have been callous office-seeking high priests. Priests who were only in it for the money, as it were. Priests who couldn't care less about those they ministered for, but were doing their job for the reputation, the position, and the security and the wealth it might have brought them. Caiaphas, I should think, was such a high priest who could say to his fellow Pharisees with utter disregard of all human feeling, ye know nothing at all, neither consider that it is expedient that one man die for the people, innocent though he be, and that the whole nation perish not. What a high priest. I wouldn't like to find myself in his hands, would you? A man who cheerfully gave away innocent lives to pursue the ends he thought were either desirable for the nation or for his caste or for himself. He was one who couldn't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities at all, who couldn't, quote, care less about the feeling of our infirmities. Still a moment, see how far that went. When they brought about the death of Jesus, they had no perfunction against hiring a traitor to deliver him they gave Judas his 30 pieces of silver. They no compunction against bribing witnesses to testify falsely against him. They suborned, and that means they bribed, witnesses. They didn't mind throwing on one side all their Jewishness to get Pilate to agree with them. We have no king but Caesar. Which, in other circumstances, they would have bitten off their tongues rather than say... And they didn't mind taking one of the worst characters around and giving him his freedom instead of the innocent Christ. 
There was a man called Barabbas, who was a robber, who was a rebel, who had committed murder in the rebellion. And there was Jesus Christ there, who had done nothing wrong at all. And Pilate, with more than a hint of his tongue in his Roman cheek, put the two side by side, as it were, before them, and said, Now, which would you like to have? This wreck of humanity, in whom no good can be found, as every action we know about is evil. Or the sinless Son of God. Pilate wouldn't have called him Son of God, but nevertheless, the sinless man who claims to be your king. And they said, not this man, but Barabbas. Or as Peter so tellingly puts it, you denied the prince of life and asked for a murderer to be granted unto you. Let the murderer live. Let the life giver die. Or if you like to use some other language for it, we don't want Abel, we want Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And all that under the leadership of their existing high priest. It suddenly occurred to me actually just about now that that kind of bad example could have been in the, in the mind of the one who wrote Hebrews when he said, we have not an high priest that cannot be touched. For the Lord is so different. Not just because he's righteous and wouldn't do anything that was wrong. Not just because he's just and wouldn't acquit the, the guilty and condemn the innocent. But also because he's merciful. Has been through it before. And though now he lives above in all his glory, still relives how he got there. And knows what a battle it was and can have compassion with our infirmities. For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who wonder hath been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that in our needs and our failings and our apprehensions about the future, his help may be made available to us, and that we may find mercy for sins committed, and grace to help in time of need for dangerous threatening. Let's do that, the Apostle says, as part of our Christian pilgrimage, as an indispensable part of our Christian pilgrimage. I don't want to beat any drums or ride any hobby horses. But if there's one thing that stands out quite clearly from this passage and the other one, and many another, it is that by means we may not know God is not inert in your life and mine. That our future does not depend only upon our diligence in reading, though we must do that. Or in continuance in fellowship, though we must do that. Or efforts to live true to our profession, though we must do that too. But it is also in his hands. If you need, the record says, and who doesn't, go and ask. And in the ways that only God may know, he will not betray nor let you down. Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. 
And without being able at all to sound the depths of James's words, that eminently practical, down-to-earth man James, he says, if any man lack wisdom, and who doesn't? Let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and denieth not. Somehow, if we mean it, if in our prayers we go in our destitution to our God and say, please help, the Lord will not say no. Nothing to do with claiming gifts. Nothing to do with exalting human powers. Nothing to do with wanting to work wonders. But asking, Lord, we have heard that if we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is thee that thou that workest in us, both to will and to do of thy good pleasure. Please, that's what we like. So one doesn't stand alone in the battle against sin. It is God that is willing to work. The high priest who is willing to mediate. And the one who has been through it all who is willing to help. One tailpiece responding to a question that I was asked just before this session began. I was referred to a passage in Hebrews in chapter 6. where we might usefully start reading at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted of the good word of God of the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. That crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh is the one occasion where the word in the introduction to these notes is used, the anastaro'o, crucify again. And the Apostle uses it only here. That those who reject the way of righteousness and turn back to the calling they are supposed to have forsaken may be guilty of crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting him to an open shame. What, I was asked, might that mean? And I wasn't asked, but it would be just the same kind of question if we turned over to chapter 10 and read verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversary. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now there are two passages of solemn, shuddering warning as to what could be or could have been the fate of those who threw their enlightenment to the winds and willfully turned back to darkness. Who, well, amongst other things, forsook the assembling of themselves together 
and went back to the temple or to Jewish worships or to old customs and left the church and the ecclesias and the faith in the lurch. The apostle warns those in that position that there could be a certain fearful looking for of judgment. An impossibility of renewal of repentance because they would be guilty of crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh. Treading underfoot the Son of God. Counting the blood of the covenant wherewith they have been sanctified an unholy thing. And the picture the writer draws is almost unbearable to see in one's mind. Can you picture yourself taking a big hammer and driving nails into the hands and feet of Jesus again? That's crucifying the Son of God afresh, isn't it? Can you picture the Lord Jesus Christ then taken down from this cross that you have prepared for him and stamping in his face? Have trampled underfoot the Son of God. Can you see yourself dabbling in the blood that flows from him, counting the blood of the covenant wherewith you are sanctified, an unholy thing? It seems to me the Apostle was deliberately overdrawing an awful situation to warn us that Christ died once and for all, and though there is infinite mercy for those who seek to continue in him, and infinite mercy too for those who, having lapsed, draw back in time, there may be none for those who draw away and won't come back and lose themselves in the world again. In this sixth chapter, in that tenth chapter, in the parts of Matthew and Luke that deal with the sin against the Holy Spirit that hath no forgiveness, in that part of the first letter of John which speaks of the sin unto death, there is in all cases, I believe, a picture of the willfully impenitent who have once and for all thrown away the offer of salvation and refused to have it back and won't accept mediation or restoration. That, says the Apostle, is like crucifying Christ again by one who once said he was willing to be crucified with him. I don't want to dwell upon that anymore except to say that we mistake the situation if we suppose that the risen Christ is beyond all feeling, that the suffering is over, and the tenderness of heart is gone, and the victory having been won, there he is secure, happy, satisfied, not to be hurt. It's not true, the scriptures tell us. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, and I would take it that if we decide we don't want him to be touched, he can be hurt by it. He stands to make intercession for us, and that must mean his feelings are there with joy when we respond. With grief, when we don't. If there is more joy in the presence of the angels of heaven over one sinner that repenteth than over ninety and nine just persons that need no repentance, how do the angels feel about one sinner that won't repent? If the Lord is made happy by our compliance, isn't he necessarily made unhappy by our refusal to comply? Our God is very vulnerable. Do you know you can make your creature, wretch, creature your creator wretched? 
And do I know that too? We have an awful power in our hands to take away a measure of bliss from our own God if we don't respond to him. And a wonderful opportunity of making him happy if we do. When Saul was at his worst, he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And you can see the Lord feeling the bruises when Stephen has the stones hit him. We can see the Lord saying, you left me shivering in the cold when you wouldn't help my brethren. And see the goose flesh on the Lord's person. But we can see the Lord saying, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sickened in prison and you visited me. Inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brethren. We can see the Lord rejoicing for the care his saints give one to another in his name. And this is our high priest, so vulnerable in his greatness, who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, to whom we are exhausted as it were by the mercies of God to go and repay. We can't repay, but show appreciation of his sacrifice and seek his help and get his blessing and rejoice his heart and wait for the day when the joy will be made plain in his face when he sees us before him. I think when the Lord says, depart from me, ye cursed, it will be a misery for him to do so. When he says, come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That will be his supreme joy. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sins, Isaiah 53 again, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. The only reservation I have, but what I've tried to say to you, especially in this last talk, is that I've such a long way to go myself. To be as true to that office of the Lord and that graciousness that I exhorted you to be. Let's to try to help each other all the time, shall we? Together, in one, till the Lord comes and sees us as the body of his bride. The wedding feast now complete, back to the earlier talks. Not just guests, nor a feast, nor a bridegroom, above all, not a bridegroom taken away, but a bridegroom come back. And the wedding properly furnished when the bride comes, arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, of the Lord's washing. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And fulfills in his own eternal joy, that for which he came and lived and died, who for that joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God.